0: I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe.
1: Aging demographics and rapid technological progress are creating a lot of pressure and you know the answer to many of these states is to increase female labor participation.
2: Welcome to the Stratfor podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host Ben Sheen. Increasingly, women worldwide are playing a leading role in the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of nations. In many cases, their contributions are now seen as the key to a country's economic future. In this episode of the Stratfor podcast, we celebrate International Women's Day by inviting three of the leading minds here at Stratfor for a discussion on these issues and broader geopolitical implications from their unique perspectives. Stratfor Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Goujon, sits down with Senior Science and Technology Analyst, Rebecca Keller, and Middle East and North Africa Analyst, Emily Hawthorne, to explore both the challenges and opportunities for women working to shape tomorrow. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, I'm Riva Goujon, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Emily Hawthorne and Becca Keller on the occasion of International Women's Day. Welcome, Emily and Becca. Hi, Riva. Hey, Riva. So, Emily, Becca, on on Women's Day, of course there are going to be a lot of issues discussed globally on women's empowerment, uh the Me Too movement, all important issues. And I think for the next few minutes what We'd like to focus on is the geopolitical context uh, around women in the workforce, and just in the course of preparing for this podcast, uh, we've gone from identifying the identity politics over post-marriage name changes in Emily's case to Becca having to step out for a phone call from her daycare. You know, and so these are <laughs> are the things that we we you know go back and forth between everything from. Saudi reforms and global trade wars to, you know, the latest thing that happened in our child's sleeping patterns, you know, so it's a part of our daily lives. And of course, we all have personal stakes in these issues. um, But the geopolitical context is, I think, something important for us to discuss here. Now, something that I realized over the course of my maternity leave in the past year was that this issue of parental leave is an issue of massive geopolitical significance. No matter if you're actually a mother or an aspiring mother or someone who sympathizes with mothers, this is an issue that is relevant to anybody because when we look at... the the level of angst that we see globally when it comes to aging demographics, when it comes to technology displacing labor in the workforce, when it comes to the economic strain on governments trying to support aging populations and a less productive workforce, uh, these are all issues that cause huge economic and social strain, which then Creates this this debate um, that we're seeing in a lot of countries over how to boost the female labor participation rate and central to that issue is uh, the policy of of parental leave. And of course, in the United States, we're in a unique position in which the United States is the only OECD industrialized country without um, mandated paid parental leave. In fact, globally. We only um, join Suriname and Papua New Guinea, um, you know, with that with that status, and basically it's a struggle for many mothers in this country to, uh, you know, keep up with a competitive career, um, and at the same time fulfill any aspirations of of having children and multiple children at that, which is all the more important when we consider that. Forty-two percent of American mothers are the primary breadwinners, um, and twenty-two and a half percent or so are co-breadwinners with their spouses. And when you factor in things like the exorbitant cost of childcare and the struggle of um, unpaid maternity leave or partially paid maternity leave, you know this is something that uh, you know we see policy severely lagging behind, um, especially when we look at that global comparison. And so, Becca, this is something that I know you have also paid attention to a lot when we look at other countries that are facing that demographic crunch, uh, Japan in particular, and some of the cultural obstacles to a paid parental leave policy in, in trying to overcome this, this economic struggle.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's, you know, the the parental leave and the the maternity leave is is the start. But there's this societal expectation once you get back to work and and having an employment uh, environment that allows um, for a a work life balance. And sometimes that's not um, the way a society operates. And that's sort of the problem we saw Japan run into in trying to use parental leave and and, um, increased maternity leave to try to encourage female participation in the workforce. And it didn't work as well as they had planned, in part because of the corporate culture in Japan, which demands long hours, which you and I both know as working mothers, is a difficult balancing act as it is um, in a job that almost caters to that. Um, And if, if the job doesn't, even when you come back from maternity leave, that's the hard part, in my opinion. Like, once you're back and you're trying to balance everything, having a workforce that understands that need to balance is, is a societal shift that we just aren't always seeing throughout the globe.
1: And that's the key where we say parental leave as opposed to maternity leave because when you get to the notion of parental leave where responsibility is shared between the mother and the father in the early months and years of a child's life, then the female is not seen as a liability in the workforce. And and that's really the key point that countries like Sweden have focused on to overcome that cultural aspect that you're speaking of, Becca, that Japan has, has yet to overcome, um, but where they figured out through trial and error how to encourage more men to actually participate in that parental leave, um, which does seem to be having some success. And, you know, the interesting thing about the European case is, you know, some American mothers may look at, at European mothers with envy saying, oh, wow, the Europeans, they get, you know, a year or more of, of of leave. But it's really not, you know, all that positive when you consider that those really long maternity leaves or parental leave policies can actually work against Uh, The female employee where you can get easily sidelined for promotions and for raises if you're just seen as um, someone who's going to be gone as a liability for the company for a long time. So the answer is not necessarily just longer leave. Um, It's a more balanced leave policy between the mother and the father it's a culture it's a cultural shift and and i think we're seeing it to some extent but it's
3: not going to happen overnight by any means i mean even my i'm going to insert in a of personal anecdote here even my husband and i who try as hard as we possibly can to hit 50 50 don't hit that as you heard i got the call from daycare i'm the primary contact on the parent on the daycare sheet um because my job it's it's easier for me to leave um, and that's in part. Um, my husband's a professor, and that that really plays into it. And then we can get into this a little bit later. But but how the STEM fields, the, the science and technology, engineering, and mathematics fields, are still a a re, uh, There's still a big hurdle there for women to participate, especially at the higher level. And I think that's going to become a lot more geopolitically relevant in the future as we start to see greater and greater technology incorporation, um, especially um, in the computing and AI and robotics um, moving forward.
1: So that's interesting, Becca, because, you know, on the one hand, in the United States, we're not going to necessarily adopt, you know, a Sweden-like model um, toward parental leave. Um, I mean, we can pretty much forget that that's going to happen. but. We are seeing some in- interesting things at the state level. Um, you know, we're seeing out of California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., um, you know, states starting to roll out paid parental leave policies. And I would always look at the tech sector, um, you know, the Amazons and Facebooks and Googles on more progressive parental leave policies. But you are, are are bringing another point here that, in fact, um, you know, while that may be true on some level, female participation in the STEM fields is still a big challenge. Yeah, absolutely. If you look
3: at the statistics, um, if you look at bachelor's
1: degrees, females
3: account for roughly half, if not a little bit more, of all bachelors handed out in in, in the STEM fields. Um, and that number declines as you get to the higher and higher degrees. And it's actually dominated a lot by the life sciences and the biological sciences. So when you're looking at the computer sciences and at information services, which are going to become hugely important and are, and are already starting to, you see incredibly low fractions of female participation. And even at that low level, women leave these fields earlier, and I'm I'm actually um, an example of this. I have a PhD in chemistry, but I left the field a little over a year after I got my PhD because it was not an environment I felt would be conducive to a lifestyle that I wanted, which was namely to become a mother eventually. And that's not true for everyone. I don't like to you know impart my my experience there, but that's the reason a lot of women leave the science and technology. It's just it's in a very intensive sector, and, and that intensive nature that can it, it's often not supportive. It, it, it can be described as an old boys club at times. It's not conducive to keeping a, a high retention rate of women. Um, and roughly half of the women who enter the field leave within in the first five to ten years of being in the field. So there's there's also the retention problem. And if we're going to look at women in the workforce moving forward and they're not participating in the STEM fields, that's an increasingly large portion of our workforce as we become more automated and and that becomes incorporated into daily life.
1: And that's really the conundrum that we see a lot of governments facing where, again, you take an example like Japan which recognizes that it needs to boost female labor participation. And there have been all kinds of different consultants and studies, you know, that show that Japan can break out of this this economic stagnation, um, you know, by by increasing that labor participation for females, um, and increasing their GDP as a as a result, but how if you bring more women into the workforce and into very intensive careers and you're not at the same time creating the space um for women to have children you're undermining your original goal
2: exactly
1: um, and and so this is this is the challenge when we look at um, Childcare cost. When we look at uh, just rational parental leave policies, and and what states are having to to contend with, and try to learn from different examples, I, I really think in the United States case, this is something that's going to come from the corporate level, where you are going to have more people that will be discussing at the executive level what are our companies leave policies, you know, and that's a question that I think should be asked, not just by Um, You know, aspiring mothers, but, you know, men, whether or not, you know, they have children, but in, in the interest of having more progressive leave policies for a more, you know, sustainable workforce to retain talent. Um, there are a lot I have you know friends of my own in in a variety of industries who are just more vocal um, about these issues in in their respective careers and that perhaps is is where we could see more change mobilized through those corporate channels.
2: We'll get back to the second part of our conversation marking international Women's Day including motivations behind cultural shifts on women's rights in the Middle East in just one moment and if you're enjoying the conversation, be sure to read some of our related columns, contributions and analyses on Stratfor Worldview. These include columns such as the geopolitics of postmodern parenting and the geopolitics of parental leave. We'll include some links in the show notes. And if you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can learn more about individual, team and enterprise access at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now on to part two of our conversation with Stratfor's Riva Goujon, Rebecca Keller and Emily Hawthorne.
1: So that's the the case that we see in much of the developed world in the United States, in Europe, in Japan. But let's shift over to a part of the world that's not exactly known for progressive policies toward women. In fact, quite the contrary. Yet, Emily, you know, as someone who both covers the Middle East analytically and as someone who has worked in the Gulf region... We are seeing some very interesting examples of reform when it comes to empowering women.
0: Right. I, I think that when we're talking about this global context for International Women's Day and some of the big shifts that are happening, I think it's it's natural that a lot of the media coverage is going to Saudi Arabia. Um, a lot of people are aware that in June, women will be allowed to drive for the first time in Saudi Arabia to get licenses. And there are a lot of other changes that are happening that I'm I'm not sure people are aware of um, as well. The Shura Council, um, a governing council in Saudi Arabia that has a lot of clout with the ruling family as well as with the clerics that run a lot of the sort of social mores in the kingdom, they are discussing an end to that guardianship system that prevents women from uh, conducting business by themselves, traveling by themselves, getting visas by themselves. Um, So there actually is a real discussion happening right now that would end that guardianship system. Already uh, this year, there was a decision that said that women can now own a business with some stipulations, but without a guardian. And this is huge. And this gets to, I think, how this discussion about Saudi really plugs into the conversation that you and Becca were just having, is that Saudi Arabia is in the midst of a lot of economic reform plans. They're, They're unrolling a lot of ambitious vision plans. And a huge goal is to increase national participation in the labor force, as well as to increase GDP and to diversify the economy Well, women are a huge part of that. And there is already an entrepreneurial spirit in Saudi Arabia that the government is trying to tap into. So we're seeing more and more women being appointed as CEOs and leaders of organizations in Saudi Arabia. It's still certainly a significant minority compared to men at the top of organizations. And that's probably not going to change for many 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 years.
1: And and culturally Emily, how does that actually play out in practice? Because the the idea of a a female superior mm-hmm. in a very patriarchal society like Saudi Arabia, I imagine could create a lot of social tension. I, and I think that
0: that is certainly the case. I can I can say I'm not a woman from the Middle East, but I did live in the Middle East and I did encounter some of the same issues when you request a meeting with a, a male CEO or a male chairman and you're a young woman, um, there is an extra barrier to cross there. So uh, I can only imagine the type of work that Saudi women have been doing and, and, and the groundwork they've been laying in order to be accepted into boardrooms and be accepted as CEOs. Um, but if you look at some interviews from some of these women who have made it to the top of some of these organizations, Samba Financial Group, the Tadawal Stock Exchange, um, Citibank, Middle East, mm. they have said that they knew the task at hand, which was to do the work, and they ignored a lot of the societal barriers. that they, they simply pushed through it. And I think that they are opening doors that other women are going to be able to push through. And notably, they're opening doors that women who are educated in Saudi Arabia are going to be able to push through because one of these really prominent women actually went to university in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, and some of the women who have held prominent leadership roles in countries like the United Arab Emirates, which is has a more progressive view on, on, on social issues um, and, and rights for women and the ability of women to be at the top of an organization. A lot of those women were educated abroad in Europe, in the United States. And I think right now there's this mix of young Saudis who were educated abroad, but also educated at home. And there's a mix happening of sort of what they saw worked abroad and and bringing that back home. And now with the young crown prince at the top of the food chain in Saudi Arabia, he is pushing for allowing for some of that change to happen. So it's happening amid a much broader rash of social changes in the kingdom at large.
1: And we'll need to see, you know, given the concerns of the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia, which so far has been relatively contained, but you know moving forward the more mohammed bin salman keeps trying to push with these reforms and really you know testing a lot of societal norms um that is something that we could see arrested to some degree by that pushback absolutely and i think that
0: one thing about women's rights and in, in saudi arabia or really anywhere 50% of the global population does not think about these issues in the same way mm-hmm. there's there's not going to be one position that women are advancing in Saudi Arabia. There's different levels. We're seeing that especially in Iran right now, just across the Persian Gulf, um, where we're seeing groups of women campaigning to access soccer stadiums. That's another thing that that recently changed in Saudi Arabia. Women are allowed to go to soccer stadiums. Mm. Still not the case in Iran, but there are vocal groups of women that are pushing for that to change. But and I think there are a lot of young Iranians that want that to be the case, um, but there are also Iranians that are not ready for shutting down or or, or changing some of the social practices as they become used to. So I think that that's also a dynamic of this is that people think about it in different ways. And so the conversation has to bring a lot of different people to the table.
1: And, and it's amazing the speed at which we're seeing these changes take place. I remember just last year you and I were talking about an article that was discussing how Saudi women, <clears throat> given that they're not they weren't able to drive previously – would you know basically have very high participation in um bumper car venues mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where it would just be you know women only nights, and right. that was the the time for women to enjoy the sensation of driving or even to learn to drive
0: right. uh, and that was a that was a great um there were, there was some, been some great coverage of that in Saudi Arabia and also you know I used to live in dubai and, and there are plenty of Saudi women that are driving in dubai mm-hmm. um, and so they learn to drive in other places.
1: And a lot of this, uh, you know, the regulation toward women in the workforce in Saudi Arabia, you know, is is in some sense acknowledging a reality that's been there for quite some time.
0: Absolutely. There have been women at the top of, of certain organizations. There have been women that are really the leaders of, of families, of structures, um, women that are at the top of certain offices within ministries, women that are at the top of certain economic sectors. I mean, there there are female truckers in Saudi Arabia that, that people know about in rural areas that have flouted the driving ban for years, um, but it, it's it's gone under the radar. The government hasn't really regulated it because it hasn't really been a big problem but now we're, you're talking about codifying and, and 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 really legalizing a lot of big changes and making sure that everyone can take part in it and that's why it's it's a really big societal shift for a country of over 30 million people and which is a bastion of of conservative social mores i think that everyone should pay close attention to everything that happens in saudi arabia this year so it seems
1: like the underlying thread uh, to each of these these issues is the economic imperative underlying each of these states and looking at what countries need to do to remain economically competitive in an era where aging demographics and rapid technological progress are creating a lot of pressure on the state. Uh, And, you know, the answer um, to many of these states is to increase female labor participation. Um, But the economics of childbearing still need to make sense at the end of the day. Um, There needs to be rational policy toward incorporating women into the workforce. You know, you can't have women entrepreneurs in Saudi Arabia who at the same time can't drive or, you know, can't fill out their own paperwork, you know, and so the legislation has to catch up to a reality in some sense. Um, so that may be the real geopolitical significance when we look at uh, parental leave policy, when we look at women in, in the STEM fields, when we look at, um, you know, reform in areas like the Middle East that are just now starting to to really acknowledge women's role in the workforce. And yeah, exactly, Reva. And what you're saying begs the question, if we're looking for
3: societal shift, are we starting to see the beginnings of that? Is it the Me Too movement? Is it, is it the, the changes we're seeing in the Middle East? Or is it something that's still to come? Um, so that's what we're, we'll continue to look for.
1: So yes, we are seeing that early awareness uh, toward the need to increase female labor participation around the world. The question that we're still testing is whether that acknowledgement will actually turn into action and rational policy at the end of the day. Thank you, Emily and Becca, for joining me in this very important discussion today. Thank you, Riva. Thanks.
2: And that concludes this episode of the Stratfor podcast, marking International Women's Day. If you're interested in reading more on this topic, be sure to check out our related columns and assessments on Stratfor Worldview. You'll find several links in the show notes. Worldview members can also contribute to the conversation and engage with Stratfor's analysts, editors, and contributors in our members-only forum. If you're not already a member, learn more about individual, team, and enterprise access at stratfor.com slash subscribe. Or even if you have an idea for a future episode of the podcast, you can email us at podcast at We really appreciate your feedback. And also consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor.